There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Wednesday, March 14th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tough day to be Fox News. Usually it's pretty easy to be Fox News. I know what I'd do if I were Fox News on most days. Nunez assertions, those are fact. Trump does something ambiguous, read into it for its greatness. Trump does something pretty bad, find a liberal who's wildly overreacting. Trump does something really bad, find a Lena Dunham tweet. It's not hard. So Rick Saccone seems to have lost an election. Don't cover it that much, cover it a bit, a bit. Emphasize how weak a candidate Rick Saccone was compared to the incandescent magical elixir of stature and charisma that is Connor Lamb. But elections are one thing. Student walkouts over gun deaths are another. And from 10 to 11 Eastern time, as students walked out of classes across America, CNN covered it, MSNBC covered it, both extensively, Fox spent almost all of the time I was watching not covering it. Here's what they did cover. The NYC helicopter crash, building that wall, this stuff. And a legal victory for the Trump administration in the battle over sanctuary cities. The details on that ruling. And Democrats hitting back after Republicans declared game over on the House Intel Committee's Russia investigation. Now, they did mention the protest. They did go to a reporter in Georgia who detailed what discipline students might face. But it wasn't much coverage. And most tellingly is we didn't hear from any students. MSNBC and CNN interviewed dozens of students, and each one randomly selected student delivered precise, cogent statements. It was amazing, really. Take this kid on MSNBC. How old are you? I am 12. As a 12-year-old, do you really think that you have the power to make change? By myself, I don't think I have the power, but together with all these people here, I think we can make a change. On Fox, we saw some students. We heard from none. And that, I would say, is not an accident. On the show today in the spiel, all elections are special, but the special election in Pennsylvania 18th was maybe a little less so. But first, with Rex out at state and Mike Pompeo in, will a new era of Pax Americana... No, I'm not even going to finish that sentence. Let's put it this way. Will the least diplomatic president ever allow any diplomacy to occur? We talk about it with a State Department veteran... Up next. Donald Trump clearly thinks of the State Department like a crusty old football coach thinks of his field goal kicker or a fine chef thinks of having a children's menu. It's some sort of sop to tradition or public sentiment that he would prefer not to ever deploy or to even consider. Joining me now is Thomas Hill, who is a foreign affairs officer with the Department of State for almost nine years. And then he was a staffer of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and now is a visiting fellow at Brookings and a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So I want to start not with, you've probably done a bunch of these interviews and they start right in with the flashpoints. I don't want to start there. I want to pick a country like, I don't know, Chad or Morocco or a country that's almost never in the news. But from what I understand, you know, we have an ambassador there. There is diplomacy being done and we might only hear about it when things go bad. When things are going good, that's not news. 
under Donald Trump and Rex Tillerson, was diplomacy in countries like that, was diplomacy suffering or was it quietly going on in ways we didn't know about? Well, it was definitely going on. I mean, the number of political appointees who didn't fill positions or positions that weren't filled by political appointees, a lot of them are in ceremonial posts, right? Like Paris, Germany, London, places where the bilateral relationship is not being managed out of the post. It's usually being managed from Washington. In other places like Morocco or places in Africa that you mentioned, the embassy is functioning. The problem, though, is is when the host nation says, okay, so what is U.S. foreign policy on X? Mm-hmm. And the ambassador can't articulate it because the White House has reversed itself once or twice on a particular issue. And so the ambassador is jumping from lily pad to lily pad trying to decide how to tell a country, A, we're with you or B, we're against you. That's when it becomes troublesome. But for most parts of the world, it's not a, a big deal. I suspect that there were greater friction in Latin America where Trump's policies vis-a-vis Mexico and the wall – uh, were perceived to be anti-Latin American or anti-Hispanic and ambassadors who typically have problems down there fighting back against that narrative that their job was only harder. But in many places in the world, I mean, uh, early on in the Trump's tenure, there was a uh, killing of American forces in West Africa. How important is the State Department there, even though it was a Defense Department deal? Oh, I think the State Department's value is vastly underappreciated. DOD, yeah, it's the elephant in the room. They bring the most resources table. They clearly have the guys with the guns, and so they command the room when they're there. However, DOD's role is not to engage directly with host nations on all these other non-kinetic meaning issues where people don't die. The civilian side is incredibly important because it's the piece that lays the foundation for U.S. business for all the other discussions that the U.S. government may have with a foreign government independent of the military action side. And so having it function and work well is critical. Well, let's talk about Niger. Uh, U.S. forces are killed. I assume the State Department does what it can to either placate the host country or explain to the host country what happened. Did with the dysfunction and the gutting of the State Department in a situation like that, I don't know if you have any specific knowledge, but might uh, United States interests have been negatively affected by Donald Trump's uh, disinterest or uninterest in the State Department in a, in a situation like that? Definitely. Anytime you have U.S. troops engaged in a foreign nation, their presence there may not be welcomed by the host nation's population, even if the government has said it's okay for them to be there and to operate, especially if local civilians end up in some kind of military engagement where they're hurt or killed. There's always a knee-jerk reaction to assume that the U.S. was doing something it shouldn't have, and so the backlash can be quite severe. And you need the diplomats there to help smooth things over and ensure that whatever relationship existed prior to the event continues. And certainly in the case of Africa, where we have so many national security concerns, be they related to al-Qaeda in the Maghreb or Boko Haram or al-Shabaab or any of these other terrorist organizations that are metastasizing as groups move out of Syria, it's all the more critical that the U.S. maintain good relationships with those host nations so that the U.S. can assist either through training and equipping or actually side-by-side military operations against those groups. You have to have the support of the host nation to do those. 
Okay, so let's talk about Tillerson for a moment or two. I'm not going to say that he was some latter-day Talleyrand, but in general, within the context of this administration, I took him to be, and he revealed himself to be over the years, more or less a voice for reason, a voice for prudence, a voice explaining the sometimes hard-to-understand policies emanating from the White House. Would you agree? Uh, No, I was really underwhelmed, to be honest. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Now... He had an incredibly hard job, right? He's trying to explain Trump to the world and to the American people in foreign policy matters. That's an incredibly hard task to do because the White House's foreign policy changes sometimes by the hour. And they make decisions without talking to Tillerson or other foreign policy folks about it. So he had a really hard job. However, that being said, I do think, at least it appeared from the outside, that he too willingly gave over major policy issues to the White House, to Jared Kushner to others to run and in a sense operated within this little tiny box of trying to reform the State Department. And I would would argue that there was strong bipartisan support both in Congress and out of Congress for a reform effort at state and Tillerson botched it. So Mm -hmm. the one area where I think he had the support necessary to do something good, he was terribly uncommunicative with the people that mattered about what it was he was trying to accomplish. So Okay. I think he was maybe uncommunicative with me because from what I understood, he was trying to gut the State Department. <laughs> but what was the specific reform that he could have done that he didn't do? Okay. So th- this was all couched as a transformative effort, right? So they, they, Right. They always are. Every time the Sixers try or Browns try to rebuild, that's what it's couched as too. But let's trust let's, the process. There. You got to trust yes. the process. The one thing that I would have liked to have seen Tillerson do was to come in and say, the way we've been doing diplomacy is antiquated, and we are going to completely rethink this whole idea of why we deploy Americans overseas and how we recruit and fill for those positions. This whole idea of an ambassador overseas represents the president and all the communications go through him. That's all. We don't do that anymore. That's back to the carrier pigeon and and telegraph days. We are going to completely change this whole idea. We may even do away with something called the Foreign Service and completely rethink how we do this. So foreign policy by Slack channel? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's an open or I think it is worth discussion about whether or not every embassy really is useful or necessary. We have to be honest with ourselves. Nobody in Washington, no policy in Washington is waiting for the cable from Paris to explain the French economy. Um, Nobody is waiting for a cable from Tokyo to explain trade matters with Japan. All of that stuff is how we used to do business. And the idea that we need thousand-person embassies, in London's case, one that costs over a billion dollars, to build, I would argue we've probably misappropriated our, our resources, and it's time to rethink why it is we send people overseas and what we're hoping to get out of it. There's really been this inability to kind of move the State Department in a more modern direction, and Tillerson had an opportunity. I think he blew it. Interesting. Trump said, I wanted to do something about Iran, and Rex disagreed. That's a bit vague. But if the Iran deal, the JCPOA, gets all blown up, what incentive would Iran have to not begin working on nuclear weapons right away? None. They're very excited at the prospect of Trump making a big public display of him tearing up the deal or 
walking away and declaring the deal was broken or whatever it is he does. Because that would be the entree that they would need, I think, to credibly say, look, we tried and, and America blew it. And yeah. so now we're, we're going back to doing what we used to do. And from your knowledge, how important was Rex Tillerson in preventing that from happening so far? I think he was pretty pivotal. I don't think he alone. I think Mattis and, uh, and others were probably also helpful. But certainly the zeitgeist inside State Department has been and still still is very supportive of JCPOA in in general. They certainly put a lot of pressure on Tillerson to to try and pressure the White House not to throw up his hands and say the deal is dead. And, and Tillerson listened. Uh, one of the few times maybe that he did, but he listened to people in the building. And um, it sounds like it cost him significantly in terms of stature with the White House. Let's talk about the guy who's replacing him, Mike Pompeo. This isn't just anyone. So this would seem to at least elevate Pompeo, if not maybe the State Department? Yeah, it could be. I mean, certainly it appears that Trump really has a, a personal relationship with Pompeo. However, I would, I would say we, we've heard this before. We've heard Trump has a great relationship with so-and-so or this person. And then six months later, that person's out of a job. Um, because they've crossed swords with Trump or they've somehow done something that embarrasses Trump. I think the honeymoon period between Trump and Pompeo is is going to be short, right? Because part of the reason why they are so close and part of the reason that, that Trump likes him so much is Pompeo can be in the room when they make important decisions about U.S. foreign policy, but then Pompeo doesn't have to go out and defend them. Nobody's asking him to respond to Trump's latest tweet or latest comment, even if it's a complete contradiction of what he said a couple hours ago. Now that's Pompeo's job. Pompeo's got to be out there all the time defending the White House and trying to explain all these inconsistencies that the White House may have. And that is going to bring him into direct conflict with Trump rather quickly because Trump can't help himself. He keeps contradicting himself or keeps saying things that are difficult to explain. That's true. He may run into a rough patch. But here's what I really don't understand. Trump seems to, or as right now, like Pompeo, and also value the job that the CIA does. He seems to have absolutely no regard for the Department of State. Um, I know the Secretary of State is fourth on the depth chart, right? Fourth in line for the uh, presidency. But why would he be elevating this valued person to head this department that he holds in such low regard? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Pompeo wanted it. From what I've heard, Pompeo really likes being in Trump's presence and being stuck out in McLean, um, working on things that can't be talked about all that easily. Pompeo actually spends a lot of time now at the White House more than his predecessors typically do just to get FaceTime with the president. Now he's going to have a lot more opportunity to get FaceTime with the president, and he's going to be involved directly in the things the president has decided, at least recently, are going to be legacy items, and most notably North Korea, right? So Trump, or at least the people that Trump listens to, are touting whatever this May meeting or this meeting in May may not be as a precursor or a, a, a possible stepping stone to, to Trump's Nobel Prize winning diplomacy effort that ends with him being etched into the mountainside. It doesn't surprise me that Pompeo would would want that opportunity to be that close to the source of power. The rumors of Pompeo coming over to state go back at least to November when John Kelly was drawing up some plan where Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas would end up at, at CIA and Pompeo at state. So clearly this deck chair moving has had some legs that go go back several months. And if Pompeo didn't, wasn't on board with it, he could have killed it a long time ago. 
but he seems to be totally on board. Yeah, let me let me tell you, unless Donald Trump has been secretly doing experiments with quarks and black matter and is eligible for the physics prize, I don't think he's winning a Nobel. No, I, I think <laughs> you're right. But uh, the, if you listen to the way some of the media outlets were reporting the announced meeting in May, you would have thought that he'd already he was already a finalist. So, yes, who knows? Thomas Hill is a former foreign affairs officer, a member of the uh, professional staff of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, and is now a visiting fellow at Brookings and a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Now the spiel. It was an exciting night last night into the wee hours of this morning as a wild-eyed and wounded Steve Kornacki attempted to balance pen, calculator, and sheaves of paper while doing on-the-fly computations into the special election for Pennsylvania's 18th Congressional District. Seriously, Steve Kornacki had two fingers in a cast, and then he busts out a calculator. Was it graphing? Was it non-graphing? What trigonometric features did it offer? There were no close-ups. We couldn't tell. But he calculated, and then he needed a place to hold all of these implements, what with his damaged hand, and at that moment, this is what viewers heard. Now we're 1,300. We split the 650 in two, 320, 1625. You probably got to get, let's say you got to get 1625. He stuck a pen in his mouth and then spit it out. And if citizens wound up sticking with the indefatigable number-crunching Kornacki, they found out that by fewer than 1,000 votes, it seems that Connor Lamb has won that election. Lamb defeats Rick Saccone. You know what this means, right? I don't want to overstate things, but are you ready? This means a congressional seat once held by a Republican will now be held by a Democrat for eight months until which time as the seat disappears into the air thanks to redistricting. How's that for stakes? Is eight months of a representative in a cotton candy in the rain district, does that warrant Steve Kornacki jabbing two fingers directly through the touchscreen at MSNBC like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now? This is the end, my beautiful friend, the end. But I want to be fair to the coverage. I want to quote Steve Kornacki directly. Okay, okay. I'm taking the pen out now. Yes, of course. The actual literal seat that Lamb seems to have won is a short-term deal, but what it represents is pretty big. And here's what it represents. A really, really safe Republican district rendered risky just because Trump is president. And that portends, perhaps, the horror for Republicans in upcoming midterms. Now, Lamb winning by 600-something votes or even if he had lost by 600-something votes, that doesn't change one whit the part that we acknowledged as the important part. It's still, even if he came within 0.1% of winning or 0.1% of losing, it still shows that there are fierce headwinds for Republicans in November. So this is one data point. It's one in a series of data points. The data points all align. There have been five contested special elections and one Senate election, and they've all gone far, far worse for the Republican than the district's underlying uh, registration would suggest. So what I'm saying is that the great drama of the moment, Kornacki staying up late, wondering, did Lamb win? 
Did Saccone win? All that stuff, that's not actually giving us more data. That's not adding to our information about what will happen in November. That's where network hype or partisan excitement or just compelling must-see Kornacki TV comes into play. Last night's election was a blend of the genuinely symbolic and the merely hyperbolic of data and dada. Still, if I come off as in any way critical of the great Steve Kornacki, I'm not. The guy's a genius. Also, when we look at Pennsylvania's 18th, it doesn't just argue that Democrats have an advantage. I mean, how much of an advantage? I can't really say. The betting markets tell me that a Democratic takeover of the House is at a 64% chance. Could be. I don't know. They also put the chance of a Democratic-controlled Senate at 37%. Now, if I were a betting man, I would bet that Republicans hold the Senate. Wait, I am a betting man. Hmm. But Pennsylvania's 18th also shows what arguments do and don't work and what arguments might and might not work in the coming midterm elections. Like Republicans bragging, hey, we cut your taxes. That argument went nowhere. And here was another message that didn't work for Republicans. Linking Lamb to Pelosi and implying that he was leading his constituents to slaughter. His name is Connor Lamb. But in Washington, he'd be one of Nancy Pelosi's sheep. Lamb would join the liberal flock and follow Pelosi's lead. Lamb batted this ad aside by releasing his own ad saying he's not going to vote for Pelosi as Democratic leader. I will say, even though it's too early to tell, that is a certainty, and I'll tell you why. He'll be in Washington for eight months, and during that time, the position of Democratic leader will not be open for a vote. Perhaps if Lamb gets elected from a new district, uh, the 17th, I think, is the new one that he'll be living in, and he'll already be a member of Congress, maybe then he'll be able to get, I guess, reelected or freshly elected from a new district, and then it will be put to the test if he'll vote for Pelosi. But as far as charges go, this was a really easy one to bat aside. Can I also take right now one second to comment on the ad that you just heard? The visuals were cartoons, and Connor Lamb and Nancy Pelosi's actual heads were on cartoon bodies, and they were counting sheep. This was done, I would uh, describe the aesthetic as the jib-jab style of ad, if you remember that viral video from now 14 years ago. From the liberal wieners to the right-wing nut jobs, this land belongs. I just would like to say that even though we spend a lot of time decrying the insidious role that social media has and had on the election last year, idiotic TV commercials are no better. Their saving grace was that maybe they were a lot less effective. But judged against the genius of the founders who crafted the oldest constitutional democracy in the world, we are all kind of morons when it comes to actual execution of said document. That said, back to Connor Lamb and Rick Saccone, here's one thing I found fascinating. They put up a chart of all the precincts in Pennsylvania's 18th district. There are 600 precincts about. Now, in these precincts, the ones that were Trump in last election mostly stayed Trump. Though some Trump precincts, 172 out of uh, 463 precincts that were Trump voted for Lamb, okay? The Hillary Clinton precincts, they wound up voting for Lamb. You know how many Hillary Clinton precincts defected to Saccone? Zero. Some precincts have 90 people. Not one Democratic precinct last time voted Republican this time. 
This might not surprise you if you started off loathing Trump. It's not hard to convince Trump loathers that Trump is a disaster and that other people rightly see her as a disaster. And even that people who agreed last year or two years ago that he was a disaster, it's probably not hard to convince people they haven't been won over. But when I say people... It means generally. It might even mean overwhelmingly. Look, we live in a giant country of over 300 million people. So we throw out stats like, you know, Trump did horribly with the black vote. Trump got only like 8% of the black vote. But I got to tell you, in a country as big as ours, 8% of the black vote, it's still literally millions of people. Not everyone, when we say 8% of the black vote, that doesn't mean that every African-American voted. Some are too young. Like everyone, some people don't vote. But when we say, oh my God, Trump got slaughtered. He only got 8% of the African-American vote. We mean millions, all right? Now, a congressional district isn't a country, but politicians, even when they're failing, even when they can't make inroads among a certain set of people, they usually have some appeal, some measurable appeal. People who didn't start liking them can be convinced. And even if you convince two or three or eight percent of people who voted against you or voted against your party to vote for your party, that has an effect because of every two or three or eight percent you flip. Now, the other side has to counter with actually 4 or 6 or 16%, right? Flipping a voter is twice as good as just winning over a new voter. And even in those small digits, it makes a difference. But what Trump has done is he seems to have convinced exactly nobody of his cause. It's amazing. I mean, it's not amazing. He has made zero attempts to ever convince anyone who wasn't already aboard the Trump train. But that's what One thing that this election, this Pennsylvania 18th election, tells you that if you don't try any amount of outreach, the Americans who didn't originally support you will continue not supporting you. Not most of them, not a lot of them, but as far as we could tell, almost every single one of them. And that seems kind of obvious, except to Donald Trump it wasn't. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who, while attempting to ladle pancake batter at the same time as working an abacus with his wrist in a sling, had to shove the pancake batter in his mouth as he frantically slided beads from side to side. Mary Wilson is the GIST senior producer, so she had a sundial in one hand, a divining rod in another, and she was coping with turf toe. The results? She found water, but is listed as doubtful for the USF&G Sugar Bowl. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Now, that is a job that requires him to juggle many things. Balls, clubs, flaming torches, cats. But, you know, he's never too busy to reach down and give a hug to his young daughter. Oh, wait, he's not hugging her. He's shielding her from a cascade of flaming cats. The gist, I just want you to know that we got through the entire show, you and I, with barely a pun on the name Connor Lamb. And you know what? I don't feel sheepish about that at all. I had a very mutton-down demeanor that you flocked to. And you feel fleeced if I ram puns down your throat. What I do is I shepherd you through the news about Iran, about Iraq, of lamb or lack of lamb puns. Call me a bleeding heart, but I will not apologize. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.